Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and today's episode is a little longer than usual because it's about something unusually interesting and really important. I'll take you on an ear-witness visit to one of the most important archaeological finds in Connecticut history. We'll travel to a site along the Connecticut River where state archaeologist Brian Jones and an extraordinary team of archaeologists, graduate students, and volunteers are helping excavate the 1659 Lieutenant John Hollister home site. They've uncovered one of the most extraordinary collections of early colonial artifacts ever found in the Northeast. You'll join me on the last day of the dig as I talk with those who've been part of this epic archaeological adventure. We'll also put images of objects on the Connecticut State Historian Facebook page and ConnecticutExplored.org. So loosen up your imaginations and let's go down to the Connecticut River 300 plus years ago. I'm Walt Woodward, and right now I'm standing in one of those places that just makes you fall in love with Connecticut all over again because it's so beautiful. I'm in a horse pasture between two tobacco fields along the Connecticut River across from Weathersfield. Just ahead of me and to my right, there are five or six horses busily grazing the late summer grass. On my left, there are pickers out in the field picking broadleaf tobacco that's now about waist high and ready to head for the tobacco barns. Ahead of me in this field, beyond the pasture, closer to the river, are three canopied areas that are really the reason I'm here. They're about 200 yards away, and there are a number of cars there, and a lot of people look like they're busy doing something, and I I actually know what they're doing. They're working on one of the most interesting archaeological sites to be found in Connecticut in many years. So let's go down and learn about what's going on. After a five-minute walk, I reached the site where I met Lori Kissel, an American graduate archaeology student at England's University of Leicester. She described the site and some of its finds. Later, she's joined by 15-year-old Fiona Jones, daughter of state archaeologist Brian Jones, who talked about her experiences here. You've been here for much of the dig, right? Since August 1st. So you've been here from day one. Yes. And tell me what it's been like. It's been amazing. There just are not sites like this. What's so unique about this site? Because it is an untouched um, 17th century site, and they just don't exist. And we're so fortunate that the landowner has been very nice in letting us dig here. And the GPR, I think you saw the map. I did, the ground penetrating radar, yeah. And that was, we were, Brian was able to figure out, like, where things might have been. And sure enough, this unit over here is interesting. It's different than the others because we don't have any stones. This would have been an earthen cellar. That's interesting. Yeah, there are no walls over there, like the other two units. There are no rocks. We affectionately named it the Smoking Butcher's Cellar (laughs) because we've come up with just 
I have to say, countless pipe bowls, pipe stems, and bowls with part of a stem. And they all are about 864ths, which is, dates back to between 1620-1650. So that would be like the earliest yeah, decades so like of first, European first. settlement. On top yeah. of that, we have found um, a very nice piece of northern Italian marbleized slipware. It's about you know good size. And we don't find that. That's yeah. not seen. There, as far as I know, it's my understanding that only two other pieces are known. And one is in Albany and one is somewhere in Maine. It would have been in a very wealthy household. So it's, so that's an indication that whoever was using the cellar or whoever was in this area had some really nice things. They had in polychrome belft, which you do not find big chunks of belft. Yeah. Never mind polychrome belft. It's like very in a, any other dig, if I found a piece of delft the size of a quarter, that would just be, we'd do the dance for the whole day. And you're finding bigger pieces. Lots of it. Yeah. And a lot of um, German stoneware. Just very early things that that all add up in the uh, in the big picture. You know, the, you can almost feel the excitement down here. People working. This is a very happy site. People are talking. They're, you know. Even since I've been here, there have been wow finds. You know, there, has that been Typical of what this. Oh, a couple of days ago, it was like wow's like, like this out of every tent. Everybody's running around to see what you know what people found and big piece of uh, redware that just came out. Just came out. And oh my goodness! <laughs> and this is typical of what's been happening here. Just stuff. Yep. And, and oh, also one interesting thing is the red clay pipes. We don't see many of those here, and there, we found quite a few. It's usually in a, about two percent of whatever pipe bowls and stems are found are red. And here we have an enormously high percentage that we don't see. So Fiona. Hello. Now I know you. You're Fiona Jones, right? Yeah, that's me. Yeah, and you have a. Uh, rather unusual relationship to the state archaeologist. Yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> oh, that's your dad, yeah. So you've been part of this dig, too. You're wearing a Friends of the S- Office of the State Archaeologist <laughs> yeah. T-shirt, and I guess you're a good friend, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So. so what's it been like to work on this dig? Now, how old are you? I'm 15. I'm going to be a junior in high school. Okay, yeah. so so uh, you're planning on growing up to be an archaeologist, I trust and hope? Yeah, I think so. It's... um. It's a cool job, and, um, you know, there are things that I had thought I'd want to do when I was younger, and then I looked at this, and I thought, this is so much more interesting and exciting and adventurous. So so is this the first dig that you've worked on? No. Um, this past summer, I've been able to work in Washington, Connecticut, at a paleo-Indian site. Um, I've worked in Ansonia. Um, that was also a historical, historical site that was um, early 1600s to or late 1600s. Um, and then in Windsor, we were we actually found uh, what we think is John Mason's cellar, um, and that was talked about recently too. So that was, and I think that's all just been in preparation for this huge one. This is, you know. So this one is different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've just described two 17th century sites, yeah. but it's obvious to me just the vibe that this place gives off. This mm-hmm. is a different site. So what's yeah. been different about it? Um, I think this is so unlike any 
other site that you'll ever find. It's so incredibly preserved. So we just are getting so much wonderful, like, you know, things that are that are just, I, I don't know. They're now, have, like, you, have you personally found things in the dig? Have you? Um, <laughs> Lori and I have been able to work together and pull up incredible stuff. We've, um, uh, we had a few days ago, we had the pipe bowl that usually when you find a pipe bowl, it's it's just the bowl. Yeah. And we had one that was maybe, what, four inches long um, with the stem attached to it. And that's maybe a third of what the actual length of a, a pipe bowl was, but that's like the biggest piece of pipe we'll ever find, it, you know? <laughs> and you're, you're holding in your hand part mm-hmm. of a pipe that mm-hmm. somebody was here smoking 300 right. years ago. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that feel like? What? Um, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to look at history and hold it in your hands and, and, and you know, it just like it, have it, you know. <laughs> people talk about the magic of objects. Did you feel that when you... When you... Yeah, it's um, it's definitely, you you suddenly, you know, understand everything and you, and you get the whole picture once you are able to, to touch it and to feel it. So you, you think when you get out of school, you'll continue doing this kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm excited. Um, it's funny that we're already planning for next summer, <laughs> coming back here and stuff and um and, well, I know everyone's you know. very hopeful that the owners will allow, you know, allow mm-hmm. the team to come back. Um, and certainly, there's yeah. so much, so much to yeah. still left to find, mm-hmm. right? So tell me this: when you and your dad go home after, you know, a big long day in the field, yeah. do you spend the night talking about the things you found, or you're like, oh man, I'm so tired, I gotta we, sleep? We shower and then we sit and do nothing for the rest of the day. There you go. <laughs> That's what happens. Um, because you come home just sweaty and dirty and sure. disgusting. And it so takes it's a... nice to just clean off and sit. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I, I've got to tell you, it's been a joy to be down on this site, and it is a just a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. I wish you absolute best. As you <laughs> Thank you. Keep digging in the dirt and finding <laughs> great things. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, yeah. Fiona. Mm-hmm. From the pit where Lori and Fiona are working, I move about 20 yards away to where volunteers Scott Brady and Mandy Rawson are working in another cellar hole that's much different from the stoneless cellar site I just left. Okay, I am at the John Hollister site. You can hear the sound of a trowel against stone. What's going on here? Hi, I'm Scott Brady, and I'm a volunteer with FOSA, and I'm standing about uh, four and a half feet deep in what used to be the cellar of a portion of the John Hollister house, we believe. And uh, we've excavated about a, a two meter by two meter hole into the basement and screened that soil to remove all the artifacts that we could find. And as we get to the end of our week here, what we need to do is document the walls. The walls, the soil in the walls can tell us a lot of the story about when things were deposited here, whether we're in undisturbed soils. So we have to clean them so that we can draw them and photograph them. Now, the, the listener can't see what I'm looking at, but I'm standing at the edge of this pit. It's about four and a half feet uh, deep, and on the side of the walls, the walls are, for all intents and purposes, they're vertical and smooth, except for 
the stones sticking out of them. And uh, in one part of the wall, they're very irregular. In another, it looks almost as if it was uh, actually laid by a mason. It's very smooth and even, and the stones look uh, carefully selected to purpose. So what do you think this the place where you're working is? Well, we were lucky enough to have some GPR, ground penetrating radar surveys done, and that's the reason we put this, this unit here, because we felt we would hit the basement wall and the interior of the basement. So we, you have that nice dry laid, straight up and down, smooth edged feature, which is almost certainly the exterior or the basement wall. Yep. I'm standing inside what would have been the basement, and then all these big rocks that are now uh, irregular and falling in at different angles are probably different episodes of fill after the house is abandoned. Um, they're going to want to get this back to farmland. So all the debris from the field, all the debris from the house, any stone that they find out in the field is going to get dumped in here. And you can see that in the irregular placement of the stones in this part of the, of the wall. So clearly you found a lot of stones in this pit. There has been a great deal of stone in the pit, so they must have been in a big hurry to get it back to farmland. There you go. And did they have you found other things? Oh, this pit is, uh, all the units here have been exceptional. We're finding a, a host of evidence of what their diet was. So we're finding fish bone, fish scale. We're finding bone from cow and sheep and deer, turtle shell. Um, so we're finding some botanicals. We think we may have grapes, corn kernels, um, beans. So, so there's a huge story here that we can kind of determine what those, hopefully what those early settlers were eating when they first came across the river. And, and so. these are really, this is a really early site, isn't it? From the artifacts that we're finding, that's what we believe so. I mean, we want to get the material in the lab, clean it up, and do a little bit more comparative analysis, but everything that we're seeing points to this to being uh, the material that we're finding is coming from the uh, 17th century and uh, and then back into 1600, 1700. So, so this is right at, the, right at the from the beginning of settlement in right. Connecticut. Right. This was part of Weathersfield. We're across the river in what is now Glastonbury, but at that point, it's so early that it's part of Weathersfield. Absolutely. So you've been part of this dig, too. Tell me your name. My name is Mandy Ranslow. I'm president of the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology, and that's the volunteer group that's been helping the state archaeologists out here. You know, as a state historian, I have watched kind of with envy the state archaeologists' support group. The Friends of the State Archaeologists have been a really kind of marvelous organization, both supporting the mission of archaeology, but also supporting preservation of archaeology and history in the state. Tell me about the organization. So the organization has been around since the 1990s. Um, it was a, a group of people who realized that the state archaeologist didn't have the financial and staff support that he really needed to do his job. And at the time, that state archaeologist was Nicholas Bellantoni. And so this group got together and formed a 501c3 and has a board of directors and now well over 200 members who support the state archaeologist through labor and lab work and la uh, library organization and anything else he needs. You know, I don't think I have been to a significant dig in this state where I didn't see FOSA members right there, trowels in hand, shaking the shakers, doing a lot of the work that makes these sites so productive. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you. So what do you think of this site? It's amazing. 
It is. And you've come out at the right day because it's close-up day, right? That's right, and I can see everything that was found. So what happens, Scott, when you close a site up? Well, people are very surprised that we do that, but we do it for a couple reasons. Number one, we're on someone's property, and we can't leave you know four or five three-foot holes in the middle of, uh, of their property. The second part is, if we found artifacts in this unit, we know the units around it also have artifacts in. And if you were to leave this hole open, this hole would erode and displace all those artifacts, and they wouldn't be in the context that we would like to see them, as close to where they were originally left as possible. So by filling the hole back up, you actually preserve the integrity of the other artifacts that would be on the site? Absolutely. Now, what's going to keep you from coming back here and digging up the same hole again? Well, what we do is we set, when we first come out here, we set an initial point. We call it the zero-zero point, and we measure everything from that point. So I am currently in north 12, west 15. So if I go back to our zero point, which we've staked into the ground, and measure uh, north 12 meters and west 15 meters, I'll be in this unit. And that's how we keep track of all the units across the site. So you'll be able to pinpoint exactly where you were, even if you come back here 10, 15 years from now. Absolutely. That's terrific. Scott, I know from studying my Connecticut history that especially along the Connecticut River, there was a tremendous amount of indigenous settlement, right? Yes. So what we're on is a European site, but was there any contact with Native people? Have you been able to tell that? Well, yeah, we've actually found some artifacts that we know were up to uh, several thousand years ago, so that's well before the Natives got here. But I think, to me, one of the most interesting things that's come out of this site is uh, the amount of Native American pottery. And it's come out of the what we, what we think of as an English site. Right, which is really surprising, uh, the quantity of it. I mean, if we had found just a little small piece, which archaeologists in Connecticut don't usually find that. You can go your whole career and not find a piece of native pottery. Um, so what we found is upwards of 150 fragments of native pottery. Some of them are, most of them are substantial in size, probably about palm size, which would lead us to believe that the Europeans had complete native-made vessels in their as part of their inventory in the household. And what does what does that suggest about their relationships with the with the local people who were here when they arrived? Well, there is some historical evidence that or or stories and some history that supports that the Hollisters had a very close relationship with the tribal people that were here. Uh, they helped they helped the tribal people fortify their settlement. The tribal people were working crops with them and assisting them. And it sure seems to be, to at least giving us some evidence to support that, that there was a close relationship, that whether they were exchanging goods or purchasing goods or gifting goods to each other, that there was some kind of a relationship that was a little bit... Uh, seemed to be very platonic and beneficial to both sides at that time. So, and, and these are the kinds of things you find just by working your way down through the layers of trash and treasure, right? Right. right. Archaeologists dig up people's garbage, so we have to kind of then figure out where that, where that garbage fit in when it, before it was garbage, before it was broken, before it was abandoned, and before it was obsolete. And I think that's the challenge, figuring out the story from the, from the artifacts. You know, 
for me, it's hard to come to a site like this and just not be jealous of you guys. I know you work hard, but this is playing in the dirt and finding good stuff at the same time. It's pretty wonderful. Yeah. This but the real work begins when you close it up and go back to the lab, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're making identifications here in the field, and I think with a pretty high degree of confidence. But we need to get these things into the lab and clean them and conserve them and do some further research on them to make sure they are what we thought they were. Um, and then, then the real challenge starts is putting the story together from all those pieces. And have you found enough? Uh, I guess there are three sellers here you've been working on and some other test pits. Have you found enough in the way of artifacts to keep people busy for a while? Oh, this is going to keep people busy for a long time. Yeah, so it's quite a sight, huh? It's. I think it's probably one of the uh, most important colonial era sites in Connecticut for sure and maybe in the Northeast. They sure knew how to pick places to settle, too. This is a beautiful setting, isn't it? It's gorgeous. And you know what? When you look around, uh, it probably looked a lot the same. Barns and farm fields, and it's just a beautiful place to be. And uh, we've been lucky to be out here. I mean, I really need to. I think we all really are thankful that the property owners are as interested in this history as we are. It takes property owners who have an appreciation for the importance of archaeology to let you know, there must be right now 25 people here in various, under various tents, working like crazy, and that's not usually what uh, farmers expect to have going on in their fields unless they've hired the workers, right? <laughs> that's right. They've been phenomenal, and, and we understand that sometimes we're a bit of an intrusion, and, and uh, we're very grateful that they've been so thoughtful and helpful and so interested. They've all been out here. Um, working with us and screening and finding material so they're they're really into it and i hope that you know uh, that they're interested in having us back because we'd love to be back if this was my place i'd be out here with a shovel and a trowel too <laughs> i tell you now mandy will fosa members get involved in helping process and really come to you know develop the stories of these artifacts oh uh, that that's up to the state archaeologist but if he needs help we are certainly available to do that. Is it the kind of thing that your members have done in the past? Yes. Every Monday in the non-digging season, there are hosts of volunteers at UConn. And what is non-digging season? The winter. You know, I suspect there'll be people who hear this podcast who think it would be really fun to be a mem be a friend of the state archaeologist. So if someone wanted to be part of FOSA, how could they get in touch with you? Um, they can either Google the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology in Connecticut, or they can go to www.fosa-ct.org. And we have information and a membership form and, and ways on there that they can join us. People do not need to have any background in history or archaeology. They just need to have an interest. We have many members who have never done archaeology in their life and have come out here to learn, much like Scott. And uh, we are perfectly happy to, to train people, and we can accommodate uh, anybody to get involved in whatever way they can. I am telling you. If Brian wants to trade jobs sometime, I'm ready to be the state archaeologist after seeing this. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Not far from Scott and Mandy, another team is working on a much smaller test pit. But even here, they've found remarkable artifacts, 
while talking to them, I get a first-hand look at an explanation from volunteer Glenda Rose of how to read a GPR, that is ground-penetrating radar, image, so you can see what it looks like. We've put a copy of that image on the Connecticut State Historian's Facebook page and at ConnecticutExplored.org. So in this little pit that is, you know, maybe, what, a meter and a half by a meter, something like that? Meter by a meter. Yeah, meter. by a meter. So three feet by three feet, a hole that goes down maybe four or five feet, maybe four. But you found an incredible musket ball, a pipe base, right, a pipe stem or a pipe. And a stem. And a stem. It's metatarsal. Metatarsal. From cattle. And we just found a tooth, a molar. <laughs> uh, animal? Uh, two teeth yeah. yesterday, two animal teeth. So if you put them under the pillow, the archaeological tooth fairy will come. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So we Something like that. Bring more teeth. <laughs> well, I notice a familiar cap actually down in this pit. It's someone I know from another setting. I'm Dick Hughes. And Dick, for many years, served on the State Historic Preservation Council and actually was the... I was the first architect on it for a long time. He was one of the sort of linchpins in preserving historic architecture in the state. And I guess you've been involved with the state archaeologists and digs like this for some time. Yes, I think... In 2005 or seven, And obviously you must like it because you're still doing it. Yeah. So of, compared to other sites that you've been to and other digs, how does this one compare? Very complex. Very exciting. I was first exposed to this site last year when he did, first did the, uh, the GPR setting. So, so the ground-penetrating radar showed you it would probably be a really interesting site. Yeah, we did. Uh, we started out with pits like this, you know, dug down a little bit and started finding remains. And then he refined the, refined the search this year and came up with a much more ambitious three-meter trench, sure. if you will. And what is it that makes this site so exciting to you? Well, for me, it's, it's, it's buildings. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I would think having the knowledge of an architect when you come to a site like this really is helpful in decoding what you're finding in the ground. And Sometimes. I look at this site, and I see, you know, two or three holes that sort of look like they could line up with each other. Yeah. And, you know, that's not what you see when you look at them, is it? Well, I, I do. And, and I wish I wish we could sort of do more test pits in certain directions just to, to make sure that make what sure that what we're seeing is what we what we think or hope it is. So so what you've got right now is an exciting site that still has some mystery to it. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's gonna be well documented so that when you know, even though we have to fill it in, uh, we can come back next year and intelligently lay out new pits yeah. that will then extend what what we have already documented or not. Is that the ground-penetrating radar? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. There it is. I'm looking at a yeah. long sheet of paper, legal-sized sheet of paper, and about two-thirds of it is 
covered with black and white like dots digits it looks it looks kind of like an aerial photo of an amoeba farm but that's not what it is right what am i seeing it represents changes in the soil texture so it's a good hint when you see something that's darker than the rest that there's something there you know the the soils change could be maybe a pile of rocks or something but so if i understand this right People came and walked over these fields with these radar machines that actually would penetrate Mm -hmm. the soil and show the different layers. And And where we see these darker, they clearly look rectangular, Mm -hmm. these darker splotches, that's a clue to archaeologists that this is a place you want to put test pits down. You want to see what's going on there. And has it, the dig this year confirmed what the ground penetrating radar suggested to you? Yeah, definitely. The buildings, yeah. These buildings where we've dug. And obviously in, you know, in one summer you can't begin to explore all the different things they have here. We're we're here, this little square off to the side. It looks Interesting, suspicious that there might be something. So there. this is where Dick Hughes is standing right now, yes. and that's right where the musket you. ball came from. Correct. And, yep. and right behind us, where there are a bunch of people digging, and they've been pulling out all kinds of stuff from the beginning, yep, is that that looks like a kind of house cellar of right, some sort. Yeah. Yes. And these we know are wells. These two here. That's that. These are quite curious. <laughs> those are curious. Yeah. I know when I talked to Brian Jones, a state archaeologist, he had said something about there possibly being palisades around here. Does it, you know? Yeah, I don't. They what? What? The curious things are circular. They're little circular pits that they're wider than you would think a post hole would be. But you know, without going into them, it's hard to know what it is. Right. Yeah, they're almost almost a meter across. Yeah, they look like they're a meter across. But what's most interesting is they're laid out in what appears to be a straight, you know, pretty straight line. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's a future dig. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That the wonderful thing about a site this rich is that even when you're done and you take away all the treasures and there are many coming from this site, mm-hmm. there are still more questions than you have. Lots answers, of questions. Right? Yep. Exactly. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. The last person I talked to before leaving the site is Brian Jones. Connecticut State Archaeologist, and the conductor who orchestrates and supervises all aspects of the dig. I go to the canopy where he and Brendan Kane, a historian of Ireland at the University of Connecticut, are deep in discussion about the family history of the site. And we do, it, the fortification occurs in 1675, so a little bit later because of oh, yeah. Philip's War over here. Um, and, and by then, so at this point... Gilberts are out. 1650, 1665 is when John Hollister Sr. passes away. We have his probate, which is quite detailed, and that's when he passes this property at Naog to his son, John, who's later called John Sr. Okay. Um, so in 1667, he marries and comes on the farm and starts to raise his family here. Um, so we know they have Indian corn. We know they have wheat. Uh, we know there's an apple orchard. He's, he's to provide his mother with 20 bushels of apples and two barrels of cider as long as the orchard should thrive. Um, so he he raises his kids. His sons start coming of age in the 1690s, and he starts subdividing the lots out then. It's likely some of the standing houses uh, on Tryon Street still relate to that phase of, of building and subdivision of the original property. 
Um, he passes away in 1711. He has an, uh, an older unmarried daughter and an unmarried son still in the household with him. He had been taking care of a nephew who goes out to sea in 1711 and perishes as a young man. Uh, but it's in 1711, he passes away. We have his probate, which lists a number of household items. But then his land wealth isn't very great because he's passed it to his sons. Uh, but he, he has two stocks of bees, they call it. Um, and it lists uh, all the normal kind of household good. But he does have silver plate, for example, and other things. 24 napkins, which according to what I've read is a lot of napkins to have. He, it means he's entertaining. Um, and he's still a, a man of importance and, and I think prosperity in town. Isn't I mean, isn't that an issue giving away? I mean, this is a stupid question, I suppose, but the partable inheritance is one of the things that gets the English colonial mind all in a tizzy. And so here they're clearly practicing that. And precisely the thing that they're worried about is what happens that the, the family ends up losing kind of, you know, the hold on that land. So, I mean, what's What's the thinking about primogeniture and keeping the family going and debates about primogeniture versus partible inheritance? Yeah. I, that, I mean, that would be worth time? Well, what's interesting is how Hollister, Lieutenant Hollister, who first comes over, is probably, yeah. I believe he's like a second, maybe even, I think a second son. So he's not inheriting the wealth of his family back in England. So he comes over here with pox at least of money and capital to, to set up his own plantation, essentially, I think is the way to see it. Later, as the history discussion wound down, I asked Brian what he thought was the most significant thing about the Hollister site, and here's what he told me. I take a breath when I think about that. But first of all, I think, first and foremost, for Connecticut and even New England archaeology, sites of this period are so rare. In general, 17th century sites are just incredibly uncommon. So it's, it's a treasure to be on top of any kind of 17th century occupation. We know so little about day-to-day life. We've got we have good documents, you know, in the archives, and we can dig into that. And they give us interesting little hints and clues about daily life. Uh, but the details are missing. Um, so what we see, you know, here in the cellar fill, and this is, again, redeposited yard waste that gets thrown into the holes. Um, it's captured, though, all the food remains from two generations of families that lived out here. So we're seeing things like deer, catfish, turtle, as well as some of those domestic animals we should assume the English are keeping on the farm, like sheep and, and cow. Um, so what I what it kind of excites me is we're, we're seeing this wonderful view of um, settler life ways, even in a fairly wealthy household, that embrace uh, use of the natural resources around them. And they're living next to and with the Wangung people. I'm sure the kids are spending half their time in the woods with, with their Indian neighbors, learning to hunt and fish and uh, really make a living off the land. Um, and I think we're seeing that in the archaeological records. So that's lovely to me. That's just amazing. Because um, we don't have a good record of that. I think what makes this site particularly special is that it has been here since about 1715, when we think it's probably abandoned, a couple of years after the father's death. Um, and it was never built on later. The problem with places like Old Weathersfield or New Haven, even Windsor, um, you get all that later, even later 17th century, let alone 18th century and 19th century development that kind of just swamps, if not disrupts and destroys cellar remains like this in reconstruction events, it swamps it with later artifacts. 
How did you come to excavate this site? What made you decide this was important, and how'd you how'd you arrive here with your crew? Basically, the the landowner had been in touch with the historical society. Um, they had been in touch with Nick Bellantoni, the prior state archaeologist, and I was here, I think it was three years ago, we ran a, a little one-day field school out here. It was very hot. They shifted excavation over to the tree line and really ended up on a 20th century dump site. Uh, the kids had a great time with it, but it wasn't quite what you know everyone was looking for. So uh, there was knowledge of the site that goes back a long time. There's oral tradition, there's written histories, the 19th century histories, uh, Chapin's history, make it very clear that there this important farm here, one of the first in Glastonbury. Um, so it wasn't until last summer, though, that we had a chance to really, um, and it was the work of Peter Leach at UConn with his uh, ground-penetrating radar the day before our <laughs> scheduled dig. I said, Peter, we got to find a site. Uh, we know there's supposed to be something here. Tell me what we got in the ground. So he came out, and he was uh, he was flabbergasted at the, at the detail that was showing up in the radar because uh, the soils here happened to... Uh, work really, really well for radar. Uh, you don't see that up in the Tilly Hills where you've got rocks and roots and things interrupting the signals, but here it's quite clean. Um, so we saw immediately what looked like three, at least three large cellars, and we picked one and kind of did a little bit of work uh, last year here with uh, a number of families from the Historical Society and got hints and clues about what might be in the ground, and so sort of scheduled this as follow-up this year. Now, I've talked to a number of people who worked on the dig and everybody, I mean, one of the fun things about this particular site is everybody's got an aha moment for, mm -hmm. for them. What was yours? What was your big wow moment here? Uh, I'm going to say first, I think there's a couple, but I'm going to say first that um, to me the most exciting thing is, is the recovery of what had to have been a nearly complete Native American, probably Wangunk, ceramic vessel that was a big, big jar, a big, massive vessel. We know from the rim shirt it was a huge thing. Uh, it was down in the cellar, nested shirts as big as your hand. Um, so it wasn't some remnant of uh, a pre-contact native camp here, because that would have been trampled and smashed, and we would have just had little tiny fragments. This was clearly laying near the bottom of the cellar in nested big shirts. It had been left there by people and kind of crushed during the cellar fill period. Um, to me, that's so important because it again speaks to that interaction between uh, the Hollister family, the Wangunk people that they're living very closely with here. And to my knowledge, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty unique evidence of that interaction. Um, on the other side, the other kind of aha thing was the recovery of this North Italian marbleized slipware, which is just a, an absolutely lovely piece of pottery in and of itself, but it's, it's also quite a special artifact because it really so far only appears in the households of very wealthy individuals. Uh, there's a site in Maine. I think there's a site in Albany at Martin's 100. Um, down in the Jamestown area, there's a few fragments too. So it's, it's a testament to the wealth and the connections that the family had, probably in England. I believe it's an heirloom piece that came over probably right from England and was passed on to, to the wives when they were married and things like that. Uh, a really special artifact, but one also that speaks to their wealth in the community. And quite a find on any site. 
Yeah, again, I th I'll have to look into this further. We're just at the beginning of all the research we need to do. But as far as I know, it's only about the third fragment of that stuff in the northeast, or third location where that has been found. So today's the end of summer. Today you close up the pits and you know, off you go. How's it feel? It's uh, and partly it's a relief. It's been hot, hard work, and I want to make sure that I, I give a shout out to all the FOSA members who have been such tremendous troopers and ex now that's the friends skilled. of the Office of yeah, State Archaeology, right? And they are yeah. all over this site. Yeah. I've talked with several of them, and it's very clear that a lot of the great work of the state archaeologist is done by the friends of the office of the state archaeology. Exactly, because I just have time to supervise, basically. So um, it's it's been their excellent record keeping and excellent excavation methods. That's it's They're doing such a great job. And None will they be working with you in the lab as you do the analysis of this? Stuff? They'll do some. I will probably hand most of this over to a graduate student that I have some funding for, so um, she'll be in charge of the inventory, most of it, but we'll keep them involved. There you They're going to be here, for sure. And they've got plenty of their own sites that we need to finish inventory on, too. So we've got a lot of work for them in the lab this, this winter. So you couldn't have done it without FOSA, but the work this year is done. You ready to take a break and think about what you found? I am exhausted, but I've got a huge smile on my face. When we started this... We really weren't sure what we were getting into. There was an anxiety. For a year, I've wondered, what if this is like sellers under a tobacco shed? And so I think we've finally established we're on this really remarkable site. It's as good as it looked last year from the radar. And uh, so we're just, well, we don't even know. My, our, all our heads are spinning. Do you hope to come back? I hope so. If we get the opportunity, I could see coming back for uh, a couple of years. Awesome. Thanks very much. Brian Jones, State Archaeologist. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Lieutenant John Hollister, the Hollister Site property owners, Brian and Fiona Jones, Lori Kissel, Scott Brady, Dick Hughes, Mandy Ranslow, Ed Griswold, Glenda Rose, Jasmine and Maeve, Brendan Kane, and all the people who worked on this remarkable site. You can hear all the Grading the Nutmeg podcasts by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or visiting us at gradingthenutmeg.lipsign.com. And to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or to order a past issue, including the summer 2014 issue dedicated to Connecticut archaeology, visit ctexplored.org. Tune in next time when Connecticut Explored publisher Elizabeth Norman interviews New England Air Museum director Jerry Roberts about the 75th anniversary of Bradley Field. From deep in the trenches to high in the Connecticut skies, there's always one great history story after another waiting for you on Grading the Nutmeg.